either in their underwear or naked on a concrete floor. Welcome back to Parallel Justice, the podcast that dives into the crimes and cases that have dominated the national headlines through exclusive interviews with the very attorneys who fought the cases. Some of the discussion you hear today may be controversial. However, we know that silence, especially on tough issues, only enables and encourages wrongdoers. It's our goal to bring these issues to light so that we may have meaningful discourse around them. The views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable, however, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. The topics we discuss may be disturbing, and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering, and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. I'm Renee Williams, Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime, and your guide through this conversation. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back to another season of Parallel Justice and a brand new episode. Today, we have an attorney that some of our guests might be familiar with, Guy D'Andrea, who previously joined us for a Scientology discussion. And today, Guy is joined by two of his colleagues, Jesse Forbes and Scott Long. And as always, we're going to put their information in the show notes. But they're here to talk about a different case that came out of the state of West Virginia. And before we get started in all that, I just want to give our attorneys a chance to introduce themselves, starting actually with the new folks, because everybody knows Guy, so starting with Jesse. Hi, thanks for having us. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. I'm Jesse Forbes. I'm based in West Virginia and handle crime victim cases. And Scott. I'm Scott Long, like Jesse. Uh, thanks for having us. I also work in Charleston, West Virginia, and... With these cases, it was my first foray into uh, crime victim cases, and it's been the experience of a lifetime. And Guy, just in case folks have forgotten about you, do you want to introduce sure. yourself? Thanks for having me back, Renee. Uh, I'm Guy D'Andrea. Uh, my practice is based out of Philadelphia, but I practice nationwide, uh, where I exclusively represent survivors of sexual and physical abuse, and I'm honored to be here with Jesse and Scott to talk about this horrific set of events that occurred in Harrison County, West Virginia. Now, we're going to talk about a, a case and a topic that we've never talked about before, which is the troubled teen industry and, and certain boarding schools. So before we dive into this specific case, could one of you explain what the troubled teen industry is. I think it's gotten a lot of attention lately, especially because of Paris Hilton. So if maybe you could explain what that is and what we're looking at here. Sure, so the troubled teen industry, where you often see in terms of placement, comes up in terms of a boot camp type facility or a mental health type facility. Now, when I say mental health, I don't mean a psychiatric hospital, right? So you have children whose parents for one reason or another, can't handle the behaviors of that child. Maybe the child's acting out. Maybe the child does have, in fact, legitimate mental health issues. Uh, sometimes the child's not really doing anything other than being a child. And the parents, despite wanting to help the child at times, but other times just not wanting to deal with it, will find one of these two types of facilities. And when they're sent there, oftentimes there is no communication with the parents for weeks or months or at all. And they are most often overnight or week long or weeks long, or in the case we'll be talking about, months if not years long. Uh, 
And the whole idea is to correct behavior, address potentially mental health issues, if that's the type of facility, and get the child back to sort of what baseline or normal functioning through all sorts of means. And so I imagine in a lot of these cases, and not necessarily this case, but that the families are a little bit wealthier, so they are paying a great deal of money, so they expect their children to be taken care of, one, but two, what, if things go wrong with the school, there is a certain notion that the children are just struggling emotionally, and so they might be making things up. Is that what you've experienced? Yes. Um, in fact, they, a lot... The good facilities do it properly because there are some really good facilities out there for children. The bad facilities, uh, what I saw not just in this case, but in other boarding school type cases for at-risk troubled teen youth, is that the director of the facilities will actually instruct the parents up front before the child's even enrolled, saying, your child's going to call you and say, we're beating him or her, we're sexually assaulting him or her, that we're starving him or her because they know that previous children that they were doing those exact things to reported. So they upfront it so that when the child does report, if the child reports, it's already planted in the parent's head that this is a lie. Into a much larger facility where she was bringing in 30 to 50 children, boys and girls per year, paying on average between $2,800 and $3,500 per month per child. It was advertised as a facility that could, quote, cure, not help, cure ADHD, reactive attachment disorder, bipolar disorder, other psychiatric conditions and mental health conditions or problems. And ultimately, what was there were no doctors, no nurses, no therapists, no counselors, no psychiatrists, no psychologists, no one who had degrees, 90 at times 80 to 90% of the staff were from foreign countries. No problem necessarily with people coming to work, but they had no accreditation, they had no background, they had no formal education. Uh, and then what we saw when we dug into this case, and I'm sure we'll talk about each of these categories, but we identified significant categories of abuse and it was physical abuse, sexual abuse, quarantine, which doesn't mean what it means in 2020, right? quarantine, which we'll talk a lot about, social, which we'll talk about, work crews, educational neglect, and medical neglect. And almost every one of these children suffered from almost all of these categories of abuse. Now, before we get into that, I just want to set the table for, because you mentioned Susan Gill Clark stepped in and her staff, um, who was unaccredited. Who was she? Did she have any experience in therapy, in education, in anything? What was her background? Yeah, no therapy. She was a registered nurse. Uh, she sort of floated around. She grew up in California, uh, made her way to West Virginia, uh, but she was a nurse. I mean, and that, that's great, but that doesn't make you qualified to run a boarding school for children who have significant mental health issues. And the staff, she was doing no background checks on the staff. The staff were not brought in with any kind of um, counseling certification or anything along those lines. And as Guy said, the majority of the staff were from outside of the country, which again is not a problem necessarily, but here 
They, they, they would bring them in and make them teachers or make them counselors or make them in charge of children. And they had no training that we could tell whatsoever in that format. And most of them were met uh, on mission trips or, or, or identified through the church. And then they were brought into this rural part of, of West Virginia and given a job uh, in charge of uh, boys and girls dormitories and education and um, things that they were not equipped for. And just, to, I want to just highlight what Jesse just said, just so it's clear. In 20 some years of this facility operating, not a hundreds of staff members, not a single one received a child protective services background check or a criminal background check. Not one. The school operated from 1988 until 2014. How did they say that they were going to cure these kids? Was there any information given? No. Well, that's not fair to say no. They would religious-based, education-based, and work-based, right? And sort of the mind of the mindset of you know an idle mind, right? They're, these children have idle minds, so they're sort of running them up. And so we're going to keep them busy essentially every single moment of the day, except for when they're sleeping. So work crews, quote unquote education, you'll hear about why I'm saying quote unquote education, um, and just constant supervision. And the sad thing is most parents didn't really inquire as to, you're saying you're going to cure bipolar, which is not curable. So let's just be clear about that. So what are you doing? That no one really inquired about that. Uh, you, you had a lot of parents who were, were in the same religious um, group as Ms. Clark, and they believed through part of that that by working hard, by a strict um, diet, uh, that they could cure these disorders that, as Guy said, are not curable. And Ms. Clark went around and, and, and advertised this school. She spoke uh, at various religious conferences. She spoke to a lot of churches. She actually had a, 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 was on a television program through one of the churches for a very long time where she would talk about how they started with um, some foster placements and, and these kids were doing so well that they decided to open the Miracle Meadows School. And we always use school in, in, in quotation marks because this place, um, as Guy said, there really wasn't much in the way of any actual education being done. But they had children out every waking moment sling blading, digging ditches, doing all sorts of uh, physical activity. And when they weren't doing that, they were repeating, uh, writing down Bible verses and going through um, a process that supposedly would help them with their mental health. And, and, and my, my impression of it is that because she did this within the context of this church, that people just assumed, well, that wouldn't happen unless what she's saying is for real. Sure. And to your point, Jesse, about basically cleansing the body, many of these kids came in on prescription drugs for serious uh, issues, and they weren't allowed to take them. I mean, her belief was they shouldn't be on those. Were they, they at least weaned strict. off? Were now, they weaned off? one, Renee, stripped of their necessary psychiatric medication. And anyone who deals in mental health knows if you have someone on an antipsychotic that they've been on for hell a, a month but these kids some of them for years they go in day one removed their medication the, the damage that does to a child to a human being removing them of their antipsychotic medication without leaving them off uh, is indescribable and most of these children had very serious um, psychological issues and mental health issues 
And you know, to Guy's point, I mean, they're bringing them in and just taking the medication away and then um, punishing the children for behaviors and actions that they, that, that they would exhibit after they've taken away the medication that they need. Were there any physicians on site or did they have any access to medical care on site? They actually deprived them of access to medical care. There were no physicians. There, were, there, was, there was absolutely no medical care here. And they very rarely took them for any treatment. Any, there was one. But, and to that point, when they did take them for treatment, and we're talking broken bones and things like that going you know, untreated. But when they were forced to, because it was more dire, they would never let the child out of their sight alone with a physician. A staff member will be with them all the time. And we'll get into that, but that's actually how this finally got exposed. Yeah, the yeah. There was a, and this isn't us speculating, there are policies that we have, copies of their handbooks in the actual documents they gave to staff says under no circumstances are you to take a child to see a medical provider because the medical provider is a mandatory reporter. And if you're going to take a child to medical care, under, like Scott said, the dire circumstances, it had to be approved by Gail Clark. What if Gail Clark's not reachable? Staff, and you'll, like Jesse indicated, you'll hear about this, but that ultimately is what happened. I mean, it took hours to take a child who was going to die to the emergency room because of the actual policies that were in place at this facility. Just so everybody knows, what was actually happening at Miracle Meadows? We talked about the workforce and some people would say that's good, um, and a lot of prayers, but what else well, is happening? So, so let's start with, I'm saying this sort of perversely and a little tongue-in-cheek, although the topic is, is, is upsetting, sexual abuse, right? I would normally start with that because, you know, and oftentimes in the work that we do, that is the most horrific thing you can do to a child, right? Quarantine, this is the only case in my career um, where I'm like, is quarantine worse than sexual abuse? And now, I'm obviously not actually doing that, right? But the quarantine was so horrific. These children, this is not a prison. These children from day one would be placed into a solitary confinement cell that had no window, the door locked from the outside. Occasionally there would be a bed, but oftentimes the children were forced to sleep either in their underwear or naked on a concrete floor. And they were given a Folgers coffee can to urinate defecate, and if a girl was on her period, have her menstrual cycle in the room without any feminine hygiene product, without any toilet paper, and children would stay in this room unventilated for anywhere from three days to our longest child was in there for nearly nine months in solitary confinement. And he's being generous sitting in a room because it's five by eight, mm -hmm. no window, freezing in the winter. Um, it, it was brutal. These were cells, and these are kids as young as I think seven, seven, since the youngest we're aware of. It was put in a five by eight cell, given a coffee can for a bathroom, and no toilet paper. I mean, these kids, we, we, we found out that if they were lucky enough to have any clothing, they were ripping pieces of it off to use as toilet paper, starting at seven years old in this isolation cell where they'd have to write down religious verses, and they'd be kept, kept in there for months. It was just an absolute house of horrors. No showers. Minimal nutrition. One or two meals a day. Usually something very bland, like you know, a, a rice or beans or something along those lines, um, if they were lucky enough to actually get the beans. Yeah. 
did you go into quarantine when you first came and then you were eventually let out? Was it yeah. a disciplinary method used or was it just the standard? So yeah, <laughs> both, right? So day one, most children, like they just get in there. They're in quarantine for a couple of days. But then to your point, Renee, if there was a problem and like it could be literally from a child being told, stand in line and the child says no. Okay, well, now you're in quarantine. Like you said no to a command, so we're gonna put you in solitary confinement, which by the way, juvenile detention centers for children who have committed crimes are not allowed to do. What else was happening there? So quarantine sounds awful. And one of my questions was gonna be how rampant was this? It sounds like every kid was quarantined at least for a little bit, but what else was happening? I mean, just the work crews alone, some of the things I've heard you guys describe in the past, um, I think those are important for people to hear what, what a work crew actually was as well. Well, when we, when we use the term work crew pretty loosely here. I mean, this is where they would have staff members take the kids out in, in freezing temperatures. This was a um, large rural area in West Virginia. And these kids would be out shoveling snow, digging ditches, um, uh, dealing with um, a, a rudimentary sling blade to cut weeds down. And they, they'd have to do that type of stuff, whether it was freezing, whether it was raining, whether there was snow on the ground, they weren't given the proper type of, of even clothing for that. I mean, we had, we had so many kids testify about how they had shoes that had, uh, I think, holes in them. I mean, they, they, these were not work boots. These were not things where they were given proper insulation. And it gets cold in West Virginia in the winter up in the mountains. And that's where this was. Not paid, right? Not no child was paid for this labor. They're working under the best of circumstances, six hours a day, hard labor, six days a week. That was the very minority of cases. Most children were working between 10 and 14 hours a day, six days a week. Instead of being in school. So I think you already answered a little bit of this, but there was hard labor. There was no education happening. So was it hard labor and then quarantine? What else was going on at this school? So, so education, Renee, the education, well, what they would, this is how the education program played out. On, it's, on the best of days, a child would be, quote unquote, in a classroom for three hours max. On the best of days. Learning okay? about what? Well, <laughs> hold tight, okay? So... And it changed from year to year. So, but you're talking about a long period of yeah. time here, 88 to 2014. So there's there's different time frames as to what it was. But the vast majority, so if we're doing the, the sort of the median of what happened to the, the children in this educational program, boys and girls seven to twelve would be in one room, boys and girls 13 to 17 another room. In other words, if you were seven or twelve, you're all in the same classroom. Nowhere in the world does that happen, right? And then conversely, if you're 13 or 17, you're in a different classroom. There is literally no teacher. There's a staff member who sits at the front. You're given what's called a PACE packet that is multiple choice for potential answers to questions like math, science, whatever it may be. The children were given this packet. They'd have to answer. They bring it up to the staff member who had the answer key. And she would say, that one's wrong, that one's wrong. Go back and do it again. And they would just keep bringing the packet back until they essentially circled the right answer. Um, that was the education program. There was never an actual lecturer, save for religion, who would be up there teaching these children. It was all this 
so so-called self-guided pace program. And, and we had times the time frame changed per kid as to what staff was actually in charge of the education during that time frame. But we had a, a time frame where there was a kid that was that, that said that the English teacher, supposed English teacher, was from a foreign country and really only spoke broken English and was and was supposed to be a, a, a quote-unquote English teacher. Of course, there wasn't any instruction going on anyway, because as Guy said, this was a self, um, supposed self-taught workbook where these kids would get, and they just had to go through the workbook until they got the answers to questions. Hey, Brene, one thing that it kind of dovetails with the isolation and the whole setup was a, a, not a program, but they had what they called being on social. So if a child said something they shouldn't say, it could be something so trivial, you wouldn't believe it. And they were placed on social. They were allowed to talk to anybody or be spoken to. And that sounds easy, but it's, it's very difficult. You've got kids like they've discussed that have psychological issues anyway, and they have to, you know, basically walk around with a scarlet letter almost to not be recognized or spoken to. Well, to piggyback on the social, the children, the scarlet letter would wear an actual orange bright vest. It was so isolating to these children who actually need it. They're there to get care. No one was allowed to talk to them and they weren't, like Scott said, allowed to talk to anyone. This is how ingrained it was in these children's head. And I'm not jumping to end what we're talking about, but just to give you a snapshot of how ingrained social was in these children's head. When ultimately the school was shut down by the West Virginia authorities and they raided the facility, one of the children was on social in an orange vest. These children are being saved and loaded onto the bus to be taken to proper homes and proper care. One of the children who was on social, the entire group, the CPS worker, the DHHR worker, said all the children who weren't on social like couldn't get far enough away from that child. They backed away because they weren't allowed to contact or touch that child or be around that child or console that child. Like even with the authorities there, that's how ingrained it was in these children's head. And, and Renee, we had kids that we represented that virtually were either in isolation or on social the entire time they were there. So we're talking serious psychological torture yes. when they're there when they are children who are already struggling with different issues, was there a physical component? Yes, significant physical component, ranging from staff members literally breaking the bones of an eight-year-old child and many other children. One in particular stands out. He had his arm broken three times. He was hit with a board that had nails like you see in a movie. I mean, like almost like you saw him walking dead. If anyone watched that show, the guy who holds the baseball bat with all the Negan, right? Like literally was hit with something like that. He was eight years old, okay? They were strangled to the point of passing out. They were restrained with handcuffs, hogtied, stripped naked, tied to poles and fields, and the, and the other children were forced to mock the child of a form of humiliation and denigration that is unimaginable. And encouraged to fight each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, while being supervised. Yeah, they, they basically organized what they call wrestling matches with these kids. But, you know, this case is so horrific that it, it's almost unbelievable in terms of, of what happened to these kids. If you hadn't actually lived and breathed this case and listened to the law enforcement officers, the child protective service officers that uncovered all of this, and the children, 
they all corroborated each other's um, accounts of what happened because, you know, we all do this work, but when, when we first got involved in this, it's almost, it's almost so um, uh, un unbelievable because it, it's just completely horrific and, and it sounds like something out of a movie. These kids were reporting to their parents, allegedly, and you, you mentioned somebody was always with them. Did any of them get to report to their parents? What was their parents' reaction? Well, with the, with the parents, I mean, the problem was is that through the school, the school would preempt that by telling them, hey, these children, they're going to lie to you. They're going to tell you we're doing all these crazy things. You can't believe the kids. They have these, these conditions. They have these problems. They are going to try to, to tell you these unbelievable stories so that you'll come take the child out of this place. So the school kind of, you know, they, they poison the well of the parent's mind on the front end of that. Well, and to then, some extent, what you just said, it's outlandish. Right. So if right. you have a kid coming to you saying this, it's like, come on now. Well, that's, I mean, and that's part of the problem. I mean, even some of the parents that would get even pieces of information, you know, would, 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 dis, would just disregard it because it, it sounds like something that some uh, child made up because it doesn't sound real. It doesn't sound like something that could have happened, but it did. Imagine a child. Children were only allowed one communication with their parents per week on a scheduled time. And if they're in quarantine, they don't get that communication. The parents are lied to about why the child can't speak to them. But when the child would call for the one week phone call, there would always be a, it was a two way line. So the staff would always be on the line. And the moment a child started talking, especially about sexual abuse, boom, line gets disconnected. Staff member calls back and says, we now need to redirect this behavior. The child's making things up. This is exactly what the child is here for. Let us handle it. Now, what about the medical professionals that we talked about when these kids did get to go to the hospitals, even if they had someone with them, that is a tenant of medical professionals that you get the patient alone in the room so you can ask them the right questions. How did, how did we go wrong? Yeah. Hospital was reserved for like child is going to die. I mean, essentially, okay. Short of that, Dr. Calhoun was the doctor. Now, what's important about Dr. Calhoun? Well, he was a member of the school and a member of this particular local church. His wife worked there. And so essentially the fix was in. He knew what was happening, didn't care. And so he was in on the cover-up. So when a child had to go because they just, they just would not get better. In other words, again, broken bones don't go. They, they set it themselves, wrap it in a homemade sling. And our, our clients still have the scars and their arms don't work properly because they never actually got the care. I'm talking about when children, for instance, got STDs because they were being raped by the staff members and it had to be treated because it wasn't getting any better. You take them to Dr. Calhoun. How did the police get involved? What One happened? of the rightest children you'll ever hear about. Yeah. The, the real sad thing here, Renee, I mean, I don't know how you pick one sad thing. In 1996, and then ultimately went into 2001, four children ran away, two boys, two girls. They reported to local law enforcement, um, who did everything they could, quite frankly, meaning the law enforcement, that they were both being physically and sexually abused. So law enforcement did what law enforcement should do. They contact the prosecutor's office. They contact DHHR, which is CPS in West Virginia. They have all the children removed from the facility. Shut it down. Gail Clark gets a hold of all the parents, and now it's a big conspiracy. Oh, the, the West Virginia authorities don't like our religion. They don't like us. They're lying. 
So now these same very parents get their children to do recantations of their statement to authorities. It goes before a judge in West Virginia, and you know I'm not happy with what the judge did, but at the end of the day, what was he supposed to do? Because you have children who are saying, I made it all up. And so the judge ordered the school back open, and all the kids went back. And then when a child would run away, the school would lie to the law enforcement, and law enforcement was scared because they already had a judge telling them, you're not allowed to go on, this gr- on the grounds. You're not allowed to do anything. And then actually it had been appealed all the way to our highest court. So it was in West Virginia's highest court, the state Supreme Court. And, and that case was appealed by the HHR all the way there. And it was upheld, mm-hmm. keeping the school open. Now, mind you, the information was not given to the court. I mean, they were getting this false information, both from the school and then now these parents uh, that were coming in saying, we, this is our religious freedom and we want the school open our children. And, and Renee, if I could add to that, when law enforcement did attempt to investigate, say there was an allegation mm-hmm. against one of the instructors, a lot of these instructors, as God mentioned earlier, were not from the United States. Again, nothing wrong with that, but lo and behold, by the time law enforcement got there, those people had been taken to Pittsburgh and flown up. So there was no one to investigate. The parents, too, Renee, one of the things that I think needs to be understood um, is 80 plus percent were white families who adopted children of color. And I've heard from several children and some of the parents who were quite flippant that the child wasn't acting like a white child. And that's why the child was sent to Miracle Meadows. I share that to say that's the mentality of 80 percent of the parents who were being called that my child of color that I adopted isn't behaving like a white child. So sure, whatever that even means, do whatever you need to do to fix the child, right? Make the child more white. Jeez. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately in August of 2014, one of the children who just couldn't, she was raped, uh, quarantined, all of the things. Uh, she finally decided I'm either going to die here I'm going to kill myself, or I'm going to I'm going to free everybody. So she went to the uh, the staff cabinet, which you're not allowed to do. Uh, she removed a bottle of Drano. She walked to where staff members were sitting. She opened it and she just started chugging, like literally chugging the bottle of Drano. Um, Miracle Meadows cure for everything. I'm I'm not even trying to be funny here. Is you would get charcoal water, so they'd actually put charcoal in water. That's how they cured all ailments. Um, so they're trying to get her to drink the charcoal, trying to make her throw up. She's refusing. She's holding tight. Hours go by. Okay. Her throat is literally, her esophagus is being burnt or was burnt from the, from the Drano. She's terribly sick. Finally, the whistleblower is like, I don't care that we can't get a hold of Yale Park. We are taking this child to the hospital. And so they took the child to Ruby Memorial Hospital, an actual hospital in West Virginia. And thank God they did because that staff, obviously they see the child, this child discloses everything. They call the authorities as they are supposed to do. And within 48 hours, West Virginia convened a absolute uh, uh, caravan of prosecutors, state troopers, local PD, uh, trauma-informed detectives from, from Bridgeport and, 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 and uh, Clarksburg. I mean, and they, I mean, like you see in a movie, right? Jesse brought up, like they just, ca- I mean, there was a caravan of law enforcement that just infiltrated the facility shut it down and save these children. 
they got all the kids, they put the kids on the bus and, and actually the, the main CPS worker involved in it, uh, when she, when she testified at the end, talked about how as they were, they were leaving the school when the children started singing Amazing Grace on the bus as they were pulling out finally. Yeah, and if you want to talk about how sick this woman Gal Park is, so they shut this school down, okay? They finally get the children out. She immediately starts making calls to the parents that law enforcement is at it again. They're after us. They're after us. Nine of the parents agree with Gal Clark. So they go to West Virginia. They pick up their children. And nine of the families turn the children back over to Gal Clark, who tells the parents, I'm going to open a facility in Ohio. So I'm going to load them onto a van. And once we're in Ohio, the West Virginia authorities can't touch us. Thank God someone, you know, anonymous caller tips off the West Virginia State Police and the Harrison County Sheriff's Department, and they're like, we believe these children are about to be transported over state lines into Ohio, and they, again, caravine to the church where they're being held, and literally as they're pulling up, the children are being, I mean, like, again, like out of a movie, the children are actually being put on the bus to be transported across state lines, and they shut it down again, thank goodness, and after that, yeah. Meadows is no more. Did they arrest her? They finally prosecuted her in 2014, and she was convicted and pled guilty to two misdemeanors and spent six months in jail. That's it. Yeah. One other staff member charged, and all charges against him were, were dropped. Um, when we got into talking to the detectives and deposing the detectives about what had occurred there, I think part of their issue was that there again, the children were now elsewhere and the alleged perpetrators were elsewhere, and they, they felt they had difficulty with the case um, in, in prosecuting anybody else. But no one else was, was, was um, convicted of anything other than Gail Clark, who spent six months in jail, and her convictions had to do with not reporting. Yeah. Now, you all then got involved um, and got to depose Gail Clark. So what were some of her responses to this? What was her defense? Yeah, she, um, I was asking her about the program and specifically the line of questioning was about the non-background checks that were being not being performed. So they weren't doing CPS or uh, criminal background checks. And I was pressing her and pressing her and pressing her. And then ultimately just off the cuff, she said, well, how we did things worked for us. It worked for us. And so I can be, you know, <laughs> anyone knows me, I'm, uh, you know, I get very confrontational and very argumentative. And I said, this worked for you. You understand that 27 children at that point have, and has been proven, were physically abused, sexually assaulted, placed in solitary confinement, not given an education, not taken to the doctors, removed from their medical, necessary medical, made to work 14 hours a day. And I, so I go through the whole litany of things to calm down question. In law school, they would tell you never to ask a question like I asked it, but I was so frustrated. I just put it all out there. It was, it was more of a speech than it was a question. And in response to that, she said, when you run a school for 20 plus years, 27 children who report something such as what you just described isn't that bad. Every single question that was asked of her. What was the response to taking the medications away? That, that, that's how they're going to cure. The, the medications are what's damaging these children. Yeah, she, 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 she indicated the belief was that the medication was a problem and that, that by getting them off of the medication, she'd be in a position where, where, where they could actually get through to the kids.
And they took issue, Brene, with no counseling because they had what was called campus counseling. And I, I think this is gonna, anyone who works in this world of what we do representing survivors, uh, arguably this might be the most offensive thing to them. I don't know, but campus counsel was a child would report to a director or to Gail or to any staff member. I was raped by staff member X, right? John Smith raped me, anally, vaginally, orally. The next day they would convene campus counsel where the entire school, entire facility, all the children, all the staff would convene in the auditorium. The child would be placed in the center next to the rapist. Anyone in the attendance, children and staff members, were first then allowed to cross-examine the child in front of the perpetrator, then question the perpetrator in front of the child, and then like some sort of sick Lord of the Flies render their verdict as to whether this happened or not. So we talk about this show, um, we talk about cases where the criminal justice system failed um, and it certainly seemingly did here. So how did you all get involved in the case and what was the process you went through with your clients to decide to pursue civil cases against this woman? How, it, how this all came together is almost unbelievable. I won't obviously not to say the child's name, but a child is arrested in Portland, Oregon, okay, for some serious things. So it's not a joking matter, but he, he is, will always have a special place in my heart. I, all of them, will, but I mean, this child was just amazing. Um, and so when he presents to his criminal defense attorney without talking out of turn or giving away privileges, but it was like, how did you get wrapped up in all? Like, you're too articulate. You're too smart. You're too good of a guy. How did you get wrapped up in the serious criminal stuff? And the child, this young man, explains to this Portland, Oregon attorney everything I just told you that would happen in West Virginia. <laughs> so it's so unbelievable. He says, look, I, I, like, I'm in Portland. I'm a criminal defense attorney. I don't handle that type of work. Um, he talks to a lawyer out there who does, and they said, well, look, I, this is too unbelievable, but I know some guys in Philly who are just about as crazy as they come. Because to your point, I mean, really, there wasn't a lot to the criminal justice system that, uh, unfortunately, uh, was a sense of justice to the children. But not only that, I mean, these are kids that, you know, have, I mean, keep saying kids, they're adults now, and, and they've got lifelong issues and problems as a result of what uh, torture they experienced at this uh, school in West Virginia. And so through this process, we've really been able to help them. We've been able to recover for them so that they can get some of the things that they need, I, you know, a chance in life, a start in life that otherwise they wouldn't have. Um, and, you know, the, as Guy mentioned, I mean, the first one of these kids was in criminal trouble, which you see often with people who've been through these types of traumatic events. I want to close out a little bit by talking about these schools in general and the troubled teen industry, and it, it harkens back to our original conversation. Um, how can parents select a good school? I, I mean, you said at the beginning, there are some of these schools that are good. How do they, how do they find that? And what's your advice for parents if they are putting their children in these schools? Yeah, so on a baseline, Renee, uh, parents, this might sound silly or, or self-evident, but apparently it's not. Uh, ask questions, right? So insist on seeing or at least knowing 
that criminal background checks, child protective services background checks are being performed. Vet the school through the internet. Don't just trust the web page, right? Look at Reddit pages. Look at other sources where people have sent their children. If you find another family that has sent a child there, it's great to talk to their parents. If the parents will allow it, see if you can talk to the child one-on-one -on -one or with your parents present. Um, go to the Better Business Bureau. Make sure, Jesse talked about this early, earlier, that the school is actually accredited, that there has been people, boots on the ground, vetting this facility, right? Look at the track record. Do a docket search to see if the school's ever been sued, right? These are just some basic things that can be done to make sure. Talk to this facility and, and, and look into the success rate because there's, there's actually a lot of uh, programs out, out west or in the Midwest, like Utah, Montana, that are just phenomenal, right? That really are, you know, just stellar facilities that, are they 100% successful? No, how could you ever be 100% successful? But they have a tremendous success rate helping children develop into productive, healthy as can be young adults. Yeah, I mean, just to follow up on that, just, as, as Guy said, investigate, investigate, investigate. Go see the facility, do a Google search, get, get into the weeds of what's available on the internet. Make sure there is some level of accreditation that people have been there. Try to talk to as many people as you can. And parents, when your child tells you they were beaten within an inch of, within an inch of their lives or they were raped or sexually assaulted or kept in a solitary confinement cell or any other form of abuse, believe your child. Believe your child. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, you can verify, but don't just dismiss it. All right. We are getting close to time, but I wanted to make sure I asked you guys, where do we go from here and, and what's happening right now with this case? Yeah, so the Scott, Jesse and I and our teams combined have resolved the first, we call it round now of cases for these young adults, uh, then children. But now we actually, sadly, but again, we're privileged to help additional round of 25 now young adults, former children of Miracle Meadows. We have 25 new lawsuits uh, that were just filed, or some were just filed, some were filed a little earlier ago, uh, a little while ago. And we are in active litigation, again, against Miracle Meadows. And we actually had, uh, we just had a conference that Jesse and Scott had with the judge a hearing, actually, that they argued. And we actually have a trial date. Our first trial date is set for next May for one of these children, and each trial will follow thereafter. And, and just to follow up on that, part, part of the reason um, that, that we've been able to continue to help these types of survivors is an act of the West Virginia legislature. A couple of years ago, they extended our statute out to age 36 for child sex abuse victims. So um, former child sex abuse victims can now bring a, a claim up to age 36 in West Virginia. And, you know, that's something that's a trend, obviously, across the country uh, that we're very glad to see because it, it does allow for these types of survivors to get some type of justice many years later. As we all know, psychologically, if you're a trauma victim, it's very difficult to come out uh, immediately upon turning 18 and be able to do something at that point in your life. So we're, we're, we're very happy with the fact that the legislature extended the statute, which allowed us to help not only these kids, but other kids. That's awesome. Well, 
Scott, Jesse, and Guy, I want to thank you for joining me again. It is always a pleasure speaking with the three of you. As our listeners know, we are going to pop each of their firm websites in the show notes. So if you have any questions, you are welcome to get in contact with them. And thanks for listening to another episode of Parallel Justice. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have any questions about your rights after listening to the show, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. Our guest's information is also always available in the show notes. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association. More information about both organizations is available at victimsofcrime.org and victimbar.org. Thank you, and please join us again next week.